Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Episode 142 on the docket for you. And man, I'm excited to share Mike Massaro with you guys, formerly of ESPN, TNN, RPM Tonight, MRN Radio, everything that you can imagine a NASCAR broadcaster has done on their way up to stardom. Mike Massaro has done it and has done it exceptionally well, and we get into all that in our conversation. But the reason I had him on is because now he's back on everybody's screens covering the Arkham Menard series on MAV-TV on Pit Road. So we talked about that, his career leading up to this point, all the trials and tribulations that went into it, fun times at Stafford growing up, so much ground that we covered, and I'm so, so, so amped for you guys to hear it. But before we do any of that, we of course got a hit on a very famous last name for the first in what may be a few weeks of the Wayback segment. Pop Siegel has more on Lee Petty, the kingmaker, as he says, in this week's Wayback segment. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 142. A no-doubter this week, as we pay our respects to the patriarch of the legendary Petty clan. Lee Petty shared Big Bill France's vision for a stock car racing league and was one of NASCAR's pioneering superstars. Papa Petty dominated the early years of NASCAR in the 42 car and tops the car's list of starts 414, wins, 53, top fives, 225, and top tens, 325. He won three Cup Series titles. It was called the Grand National Series back then. In 1954, 1958, and 1959. The legendary success of Lee Petty's son has sometimes overshadowed his own prodigious talent and success. But Lee Petty's driving career wasn't without controversy. His championship in 1959 included a victory in the inaugural Daytona 500. You remember the story, don't you? The end of the race was a photo finish between Petty, Johnny Beauchamp, and Joe Weatherly. Beauchamp was declared the initial winner and Petty protested. Three days later, Big Bill France officially declared Petty the winner. In an interview held more than 40 years later, Lee Petty said that he always thought France knew Petty had won the race, but initially named Beauchamp the winner to generate controversy and press coverage. Petty said that France would do anything to generate publicity for his racetracks. He wasn't lying either. The other time Petty was awarded a win after the fact also was in 1959 and ironically occurred at the expense of his own son. At the Lakewood race that year outside of Atlanta, 
Petty was racing his son Richard, who was competing in one of his first races during his rookie year. The son passed his father with less than 10 laps to go and went on to win the race, or so it appeared. It would have been King Richard's first NASCAR victory. However, get this, Lee Petty protested that result as well, claiming that his own son had been a lap down and was credited with an extra lap. The protest was upheld. Lee Petty was declared the winner, and Richard was demoted to third place. Brutal, huh? But Lee Petty was quoted at the time as saying that he'd lodge a protest against his own mother if it meant he could win a race. Don't feel too bad for Richard. Things turned out pretty well for him. Lee Petty was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2011. If his son Richard is the king, I guess that makes Lee Petty the kingmaker. But more about Richard next week. That's all for today. Back to you, Doof. Thank you, Dad. And for the record, if you beat me in a race and I thought that I was wrongly scored, I too would protest. And I hope that my protest would be upheld and win. I think you're probably too nice and that if I beat you in a race and you thought that I was improperly scored and you won, you probably would just let me have it. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just too competitive. I don't know where I get that from, but racer's race, you know? I may not be a racer, but I'm a podcaster, and I guess that makes me an honorary racer. (laughs) Regardless, thank you for the Wayback segment. Looking forward to hearing about who you could possibly scrunch up for next week. I think we may have heard of the guy. We'll see. Before we get into our air horn and start the show as we always do, got to let you guys know there may have been a bit of a gap in your guys' feed last week, and you may have been saying, hey, what's going on? Davey said that he was going to be back giving us weekly episodes. Well, I got COVID, of course. For two years, you know, I'm so safe. I'm I'm doing everything safe. We're wearing masks. We're getting vaxxed. We're getting boosted, all this stuff. And our family was like, you know what? We feel good. We're going to go on a cruise. Cruise is fully vaccinated. The crew on the cruise is fully vaccinated. Feeling good, feeling fine. Get off the cruise, test negative, go see some family, come home, test negative, fine, feeling good. And then I start feeling icky and I test positive. But good news is I'm talking to you guys now. You may hear it a little bit in my voice. It's a little bit deeper. It's a little throaty or Barry White-esque just because I'm a couple days removed from the big symptoms that I was dealing with. But because I was fully vaxxed and boosted, the symptoms were pretty mild and uh, mitigated those, so thankful for that. But I'm on the mend. I'm about 90 to 95, 99% better, I would say. So I appreciate all of you guys who have texted, tweeted, reached out to me to let you know that you're thinking of me and that I hoped I was feeling better. Much, much appreciated, and I am feeling much better. So I hated to not be at Richmond this past weekend because it's one of my home tracks, one of the few that I go to every single year. But alas, safety first, obviously, and I'm feeling much better and I'm looking forward to getting out to Martinsville Speedway this weekend. And if you guys are going to be there, stop me. Say what's up. Would love to see you guys. All right. Now we can start the show, as always, with a good old fashioned and throw it straight over to our interview with Mike Massaro of Mav TV with the Arkham Menard series, a NASCAR reporter extraordinaire, as I call him, and in my eyes, really, truly, one of the legends of the game. We mentioned it in the chat, but when I was a kid and I came home from school, I rushed to the TV 
to sit my ass on the couch and watch NASCAR now on ESPN. I love that show. I still do, and I loved and still do love all of the things that Mike has touched along the way in his career with broadcasting and how it relates to motorsports. A few of the many things that we touched on, Stafford Speedway, how he got started there, working eventually for MRN Radio, TNN, RPM Tonight, ESPN, the unthinkable first assignment for him of covering Dale Earnhardt's death in the 2001 Daytona 500, how they reported from there and how they were forced to report in a certain way from down there, crazy stuff. We didn't even get to a lot of the stuff that I wanted to touch on, but as you'll say, as you'll hear a couple times, he did mention that we'll do a part two, so I'm looking forward to when that comes, Mike. It was so great to chat with him and just learn a little bit more about him now, him then, and his story in general. I hope you guys will enjoy this almost as much as I did. Without further ado, here's my chat with a NASCAR reporter extraordinaire and a legend of the game in every sense of the word, Mr. Mike Massaro. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, a legend of the game, in my eyes for sure. It is Mike Massaro, formerly of ESPN, NBC Sports, now with NBC Connecticut, and Mav TV doing some Arkham Menard series races for the 2022 season. We have so much ground to cover, so little time to do it. I'm so thrilled to have you on, and more so, I'm thrilled to have your dog, Holly, in the picture as well. <laughs> Well, I've got her by the collar right now. Um, she doesn't <laughs> always like that. She likes to be involved in these interviews. So she may yeah. speak at some point. You may hear yeah. her. may not see her, but uh, when she speaks, you will definitely hear her. <laughs> she will make her presence known, as is, as is customary on this show. I've had uh, contractors come in and interrupt while installing drywall. I've had dogs. I've had computers <laughs> die. We, we've had a lot on this show, so Holly's in for nothing now. You know, it, it's the Zoom era. You know, I mean, there's so many stories about how these interviews and meetings, some of them very important, have been been interrupted by pets and, yep. you know, as you mentioned, contractors. So, yeah, lots of stories <laughs> so yes. that weren't intended. You got a great story to tell, so let's dive right into it, Mike. Let's start all the way at the beginning. I know you were a wee lad back at Emerson yeah. College. I know you got your BS in communication studies there. So I look at that from a 30,000-foot view, and I say, well, Mike is an esteemed journalist. He's won all these awards. He's been in the industry as a storyteller and a journalist for all these years. But it wasn't necessarily straight-focused on journalism at the start. It was more so broad communications. Why was that? Uh, uh, well, you know, I think like most college kids, and I've got two of my own right now. I've got a freshman and a junior in college. You know, I think back to that time in my life, I, I didn't have a clear direction as to what I wanted to do. Um, I, I thought I wanted to be a sportscaster, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I took a variety of classes at a liberal arts school uh, just to kind of get a, you know, a wide view of what is out there. And it did take me some time to try to really narrow it down. In fact, I actually transferred out of Emerson after my sophomore year. And I consider this my year abroad. I transferred to the University of Connecticut, UConn. Uh, for my junior year, and I changed my major to political science. I, I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> so uh, it took me about a year at UConn to realize that was not my passion. So I actually transferred back to Emerson. Um, wow. So that's why I consider my UConn year my year abroad. Uh, it was a totally different experience. I, I went from a giant city in a tiny school to uh, a giant school in a tiny city, and then back again. So um, it, it, once I got out of Emerson, 
uh, and had that broad experience, I had a better understanding of what I really wanted to chase and pursue. It wasn't easy. Um, right out of school upon graduation in 1992, the economy wasn't great. Weren't a lot of jobs um, for kids coming out of school, especially who wanted to be sportscasters. So I became a bartender for about two years. Hey <laughs> for about two years after college. And then uh, it was not too long after that, that I was able to find a little bit of an opportunity. My dad convinced me to volunteer at the Stafford Motor Speedway uh, in Connecticut as a public address announcer. And, mm -hmm. you know, feeling a little guilty that my dad just spent a lot of money on my college education. Of course, I said, absolutely, I'll do whatever you want, dad. You know, I'll volunteer. I didn't expect that Stafford would accept me, but lo and behold, they, they blew me away in Jackaroot. Um, he, he asked me to, you know, come on board right away. So uh, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, it started to snowball from there, but uh, that's kind of a, kind of the beginning in a nutshell, if you will. Yeah. And the beginning of the racing aspect to your life specifically, I think that stems from your dad. Did he work on that mystic missile modified that was famous up in the Northeast? That was kind of your first foray and yes. in interaction with motors. Well, I, I think the term work might be a little, little strong. I mean, he, okay. he helped out, you know, he, you know, like most people who worked on modifieds, you know, in the seventies and eighties, Yeah, yeah. he wasn't paid. Um, he, it was a volunteer thing. It was a hobby. It was for fun. Uh, he enjoyed it. Um, and you know, as a kid, I, mean, I remember going to the racetrack, you know, when I was eight years old and, uh, you know, watching that race car with Brian Ross as the driver, you know, and rooting for it. And, um, you know, that's where I got the bug when I was a little kid. And, you know, I've always enjoyed racing since those days. You know, I remember our vacations in my teen years, you know, when I was in middle school, we'd go to Daytona for the Daytona 500. Um, so yeah, it goes back a ways. That's where the seed was planted, but my, my passion for the sport. And, um, you know, that's, you know, one of the reasons my dad felt that it was a good idea for me to, you know, pursue that angle. Because quite honestly, when I got out of college, you know, I was a baseball player. So when I got out of college, that's what I thought I was going to do. I was, I was going to cover baseball or football, which I played football in high school, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, but, but I thought I was going to be, you know, a stick and ball guy um, until my dad persuaded me to, to volunteer at Stafford Speedway. And at that point, I realized that that was the direction I wanted to go in. Before you graduated college, you still were exposed to racing and your dad was around Stafford and I think you kind of had that background. So why was it until after college when you first started working there, but even before, like during college, before that, even before you went to college or even had a thought of doing something like this as your career in the industry, were you still involved with motorsports enough to have a passion for it and enjoy it? As a fan, um, definitely as a fan, but I, I didn't work in the industry in any way. Yeah. Um, you know, I still watched, I remember, you know, cause I went to school in Boston. Boston's not a traditionally, you know, a gigantic NASCAR market. Now don't get me wrong. There's lots of NASCAR fans in New England. Um, but I, you know, I went to a liberal arts school, um, and I lived my sophomore year in college. I lived with three other guys, uh, fraternity brothers who had no understanding of what NASCAR was, but I remember, you know, taking over the television on Daytona 500 Sunday and just, you know, we only have one TV in our apartment. Yep. So, but, but I dominated that day. I just said, we're watching the Daytona 500 and oh, yeah. these uh, fraternity brothers of mine had never seen a race before in their lives. So yeah, I, you know, I still had a passion for it and I was willing to fight to watch it <laughs> even at, at uh, probably 19 years old at that point. So uh, yeah, but I was just a fan. I, you know, I was, I, I had, you know, maybe dreams of maybe working in it at one point, but you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't convinced that was the route I was going to go. 
I had some flashbacks to college where we were telling that story because I lived in my fraternity house for two years. I had my own room, thankfully. So on Sundays, nobody bothered me. They knew that that was my race day. Okay. But my senior year, when I lived with three other guys, they knew Sunday was football day, but they allowed me some of the time to watch the race on TV. And when, when football season was over, they would always get really into it. They would wear all my stuff. They would be cheering like crazy. Of course, they were betting on it too. Um, but they were just <laughs> going nuts and they were trying to learn this sport and stuff. So I feel you on that. Like Daytona 500 day when I wasn't at the race, any other race Sunday was NASCAR day. And my roommates and my fraternity brothers, they understood and they come to, they came to like it and understand it a little bit. But when they, when I came into their lives, they were like, oh yeah, a bunch of rednecks going in circles. And then when I exited their lives after college, they had a whole deeper appreciation for the sport. That's how it works. Same. It sounds very similar. Um, yeah. you know, you know, I, I can't say that they had a whole lot of respect for the sport at the beginning, but I think when they started to watch it, certainly after college, as my career kind of took off, I think they had a whole new appreciation for it. Definitely. Yeah, I can I can say the same. <laughs> um, I know that there was a story at Stafford with another Mike that played an integral role in your life and at Stafford. I think you know where I'm going. Yeah, I think so. I should have introduced you as Mike from nowhere instead <laughs> of Mike Massaro. Tell that story for us. 1978 was the first time that happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that what you're getting at is, so I, I mentioned I'd been around the racetrack since I was a little kid, right? So eight years old, um, I, you know, my dad spent a lot of time at Stafford Speedway. We're from Connecticut, so that made a lot of sense. And at the time, the Speedway had an intermission. And during the intermission, they do a lot of entertainment for the fans and what have you. And one of the things they would do is they pull a number from a hat, kind of a raffle, if you will, based upon a lucky number that was printed in the program for the day. The, the Pit Stopper magazine is what they called it. And whoever's number was picked got the chance to have a ride around on the racetrack with their favorite driver. Well, it was my eighth birthday, uh, August of 1978 dating myself you can do the math uh and my my dad uh somehow managed to convince the speedway to, to pick me um so i got picked and i was you know a thrilled little eight-year-old kid to get a ride around the racetrack with my favorite driver who was brian ross but before that i had to get interviewed by the public address announcer and the public address announcer as you alluded to yep. was mike joy um so <laughs> Mike and I have had conversations about this, you know, since, but that was a long time ago. And Mike interviewed me and uh, he asked where I was from. And of course, I was just a shy little eight year old kid. And then I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, I don't know. <laughs> so, so Mike introduced me as Mike from nowhere. But so that, that stuck a little bit. Yeah. So that, that I still think is probably my earliest impression and probably earliest memory of being at the racetrack. One of them for yeah. sure. Um, and I think it really planted a seed, not, not just that, but it's weird. I mean, you know, the kids go to racetrack, you know, at 10 years old that, you know, they love the race cars, you know, they love the sound of the race cars. They love the action. They love the crashes probably, but I love the announcers. Um, and, you know, the announcers at Stafford Speedway in the 1970s, two of the greatest um, public address announcers who went on to become television broadcasters. That was Mike Joy, uh, who's still doing it, and Jack Aroot. Uh, who did it for a number of years uh, with ABC Sports and ESPN, uh, you know, covering not only NASCAR, but but IndyCar. Uh, and Jack, to a large degree, when I started at Stafford in 19, I want to say 94, uh, was it was a giant mentor to me. Um, you know, as I as I worked as a public address announcer there and then became the PR director, Jack gave me a lot of 
direction. And of course, you know, he would be at the racetrack whenever he could, but his schedule was, was very much involved yeah. in covering racing for television. So, you know, I, I do the race on Friday night and then I'd watch him on Saturdays and Sundays. And then he'd come back in the office on Monday or Tuesday and, you know, I'd recap what he did and then we'd get back to work. So, but yeah, there, there was a lot of that. And, and I was lucky to have, you know, guys like that in my life, you know, at that, that early stage in my career. And there's been others since, um, you know, I, I consider Alan Bestwick a, a very close friend, but a mentor at the same time. He helped me out a great deal as well. Yeah. I mean, that is a institution of Northeast announcing right there. Alan Bestwick, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, Mike we're, Joy, Jack Root. We're a little fraternity. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's like a Mount Rushmore type stuff right there. I mean, I I had Alan on this very show. He was tremendous. He is one of, if not the one person that I associate with my childhood watching racing. I work with Jackie at Sirius XM every now and then as well. And Mike is still doing broadcasts every week for Fox. So that is a who's who list of people that you got to learn from, which looking back on now and even when you got those different opportunities at TNN, ESPN, which we'll get to, those people helped you get to that yes. point. And even though they were kind of working alongside you in the industry, that's pretty cool to still say that you were able to work alongside and with some of your mentors. Yeah. I mean, there's words cannot describe how grateful I am to have had their friendship and their, them to be able to mentor me along the way. I mean, without them, none of this would have ever happened. So, uh, I'm, I'm grateful. And, and each one of them had, had a step, um, you know, Alan, especially, I mean, Jack certainly too. Um, but, but Alan, um, you know, he, he's the reason I started in television. He helped me get the first job with TNN on the show inside NASCAR, mm -hmm. um, which happened kind of like really quick. I came home from work one day and there was a message on my machine. At the time I was working at MRN radio with Alan. Um, but I came home from my real job, uh, at the time. And there was a message on my machine, um, from a producer in Charlotte, who said we're looking for a reporter on inside nascar and we'd like you to start next week and of course i was living in connecticut i packed up my car that day um and drove to charlotte um i i kissed my wife and said i'll see you when i can see you and we'll move you down here when we can but i need to be down there by monday and this was like a wednesday and uh, i lived with alan i lived in his house for about a week not, not very long but for about a week until i was able to find an apartment or something like that um but uh, Alan put me up and I lived in his guest bedroom for about a week. Um, well, you know, he was still trying to run his own house you know, with his kids yeah. and his wife. So, uh, but I, I won't forget that. I mean, he helped me along that, that line. And, you know, there were other moments too on the journey where he helped get me opportunities. And, uh, you know, I'm very thankful. What did your wife say when you said, see ya, see you when I see ya. <laughs> She knew. I mean, she knew that's what I wanted to do. And she was very supportive. Um, she was okay with it. I think she moved down about a month later. Um, a little bit more planned <laughs> than what I was. I literally, I remember taking just clothes out of my closet and just throwing them in my car. Um, and just, you know, going on a wing and a prayer and not even it's sure. Not if a it short drive out. either from the Northeast. I mean, that's all. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I actually, so I, I think I drove in two days, took me two days. I didn't drive straight through and I stayed with Mike Bagley. I don't know if you know Mike from MRN. Work with him every um, day. But I stayed in his house on the way down. Uh, his parents put me up for one night, my, my little pit wow. stop in Delaware on the way down to Charlotte. So, yeah, that that was my journey. That was 1999. Wow, that is awesome. I'm, I'm going to see him tomorrow, 6.30 a.m. I'm going <laughs> to greet him with that story. I'm sure he'll get a kick out of that. That's yeah, awesome. Man. 
and tell him I don't forget. You know, I, I appreciated I that that opportunity to stay in his house because it was a long drive. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That was awesome. Well, one more thing on Stafford. So as you said, you know, you had the, the PA announcing gig there. It kind of morphed into um, the PR director, I think, as well. I think you also created the internship program there, which I think is probably one of, if not the biggest legacy points that you have at that racetrack because, sure, you know, you can get into the announcing side. You can get into the marketing, advertising, et cetera. But and and still, right? It's about people, relationships, knowing people, and getting those opportunities. But having a distinct program to help you know flourish these young people's careers in motorsports, that's really really valuable. And even some people that may be interning there now, I'm not sure. Maybe they know that you created that internship program. Maybe they don't. Maybe they know who you are. Maybe they don't. But I feel like looking back on it, to give back to a place that gave so much to you. That's got to be a big part of your legacy, I feel. Well, I mean, thank you for saying that. Um, but, but I mean, it may be overstated to, to say that I created something that big. I mean, I was not too removed from college myself at the time. And so I remembered, obviously, how important internships were and how difficult they were to find in sports. And at the same time, you know, any organization that hires interns is hiring them because they benefit from it, too. You know, and, and that was kind of the case for me, uh, you know, there I was I was looking to give back to, you know, these these students who I knew there'd be, a, you know, a desire to do it. But at the same time, we were looking for a little bit of help, um, you know, with our communications department, people that could, you know, do some writing uh, for the Pit Stopper magazine, because that was one of the functions of the PR department, you know, to kind of put together a magazine every week, a brand new magazine. You know, it's probably, yeah, I mean, I'm not talking, you know, the you know, really thick magazine, but it was probably 20 pages long. And so there were probably, uh, there was probably a need for, you know, about a dozen written articles in there, um, maybe 10. And that was a lot of work just for me to do. So it was, kind of, it was kind of hoping that, you know, I could, you know, at the same time, help some kids learn the tricks of the trade, but they could also help Absolutely. me. <laughs> so, um, and it kind of worked out. There was some synergy there. And definitely we found a lot of people that, that were interested, um, you know, a lot of folks who have gone on, you know, and, and you know, continue to, to do stuff in that field. Uh, I know Sean Corshane, who uh, is a prominent motorsports writer right now, has his own webpage, um, ended up writing for the Hartford Current, was one of the very first interns there. Um, and I think he may have actually been working professionally at the time, too. So I think he did both. Um, but, you know, he, he was, you know, very helpful uh, and very talented, still is, and continues to be you know, a force, if you will, for the lack of a better word, but, but a big player in the motorsports journalism arena. Uh, and he was an intern there. Um, Scott running, who's still the PR guy, I think at Stafford was an intern there to begin with. So he went on to, you know, find a full-time niche. And uh, so that's good. And there's, there's others, uh, you know, along the way that, that really helped out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of cool, but, but the, the speedway needed it. Um, you know, Jack Root was also helpful in that as well. So I, I certainly can't take, you know, all the credit Mark a route too. Let's not look overlook Mark, Mark, let's, let me just backtrack here a little bit. Mark is the force at that speedway. I mean, Mark makes everything happen has for decades and um, you know, anything that happens there has, you know, his hands on it and um, continues to today, his children, his sons, uh, Paul and David uh, are, are basically, um, you know, they're at the top of the management level at that speedway right now. And they're really taking over too. They've learned it's, it's just three generations of family members at the, at the Stafford speedway, the roots from there, from Mark and Jack's dad, Jack senior, 
uh, now to Paul and David. So just a, a remarkable speedway. And, you know, to have been there for just a little part of it, we talked about my education at, at Emerson and at UConn. Well, I got a huge education at Stafford Speedway. Oh, too, yeah. which without that, none of this would have happened either. So, I mean, I learned a lot about the industry there, about the way this all works. And um, yeah, without that, I wouldn't have had the foundation I needed. Definitely. It sounds like Stafford also, in addition to those huge names that have worked there and work with you, Stafford is an institution and it still is kind of the barometer and the bar for local short track racing. And maybe not the bar, but it's, it's, it's what you want to set it at because it's big time. You know, I know, you know, we felt that way when, when I was working there in the 90s. And I, mm-hmm. I think they still deserve that, you 100%. know, that type of credit. Uh, you know, the things they continue to do uh, with their social media platforms, with Flow Racing, um, just, just the way they promote the Speedway, the way their shows are run on a Friday night. Um, it just, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of good racetracks out there. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to cast shadows on anybody. But, but Stafford, you know, I don't know that anybody does it any better from a local yeah. short guy standpoint. I know, um, by the way, the racing's pretty good too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but honestly, when you, when it comes to putting together a program, you know, they're able to put together a good racing program. It's over right. quickly. Uh, there's not a lot of lag, lag time. You know, people aren't getting out of there at one in the morning, like some places, you know, they're getting out of there at a reasonable time, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the racing action is pretty good. And I think that's because racers want to be there, you know, and they're, you know, they want to do whatever it takes to, to race at Stafford. Just real quick, before we kind of move on to some of your other professional stops, did you also work at an advertising firm for a little bit, learning a little bit more about the business from that side of things? Well, well actually um, when I left Stafford, um, so I was an MRN announcer and I wanted to um, continue pursuing the MRN stuff, but it was tough working at Stafford Friday nights and then, you know, having to be on a, you know, airplane or wherever and go wherever I had to go to be an, uh, an MRN announcer. So I kind of had to give up the Stafford thing. I left that, I left Stafford and I was able to find a job at an advertising agency that a friend of mine had started. And um, she was very helpful, um, very supportive, uh, but it was just traditional advertising, uh, media buying. Um, it had nothing to do with racing. It was a traditional small boutique advertising agency okay. that handled a number of medium and small size businesses here in Connecticut um, with their PR, with their advertising plan. You know, you know, they, the agency would buy their time on television stations, radio stations and things of that nature. And I was an account executive, essentially. Uh, I, I think I was a account client relations director or something. I can't remember my title. Um, but yeah, I was the liaison between the clients and my boss, who was essentially a media buyer. She was really good at it. Um, Sandy Gray, uh, that was in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And uh, she was very supportive and just, uh, you know, very much like the inside NASCAR uh, story about how I, I jumped in my car. Um, she was affected by that too, because like I said, I got the message when I came home from work. That was the job I had at the time. And I gave her my notice like on the spot and I felt kind of bad about it, but she was very supportive and she got, yeah. she knew, she knew like my wife did that. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah. So you mentioned MRN. That's obviously another institutionalized brand in the sport in motorsports, NASCAR specifically. I was reading up on you in preparation for this interview. I think that there's a story involving the intimidator at a luncheon before your audition for MRN for an IROC race. 
Was it something <laughs> about you going up to him and asking a question and you just kind of being like, wow, this is, this is really happening. This is my, I don't know. I don't know where you read that. I don't know where you read that, but it's true. I mean, I didn't know that was out there anywhere, to be honest. Um, I do my research, Mike. I, I, yeah, I, I guess there's a lot of stuff on the internet. I'm not aware <laughs> of, but, uh, so yeah. So, so here's the deal. Um, in order to get an opportunity with MRN, you have to audition. And so my audition was in Daytona. Gosh, uh, let's say it's 1994, five-ish. I can't remember the exact year, um, but it was for the IROC race. You know, my audition was to go stand in turn four, which at the time was the big 76 Unical ball. Oh, yeah. Inside there and call the action, just like an MRN turn reporter would on race day. Problem was, okay, so these are IROC cars. I didn't know who was in which car because they didn't know the drivers didn't know they right. actually have a luncheon maybe the day before the race i want to say the day before race but for, while they're you know they're assigned to the cars um because it's kind of random for the drivers too they're identically prepared cars and so in order for me to get an understanding who was in what car which was critical if i was going to call the action right. i needed to know who was in what what color car all that stuff so it was at a luncheon at a golf club just outside of the uh, daytona area and so uh, through Stafford, I got a credential somehow um, from a friend. We pulled some strings and I got into the luncheon. Of course, you know, I'm excited. 23 year old kid, 24, whatever I was. And I was there before anybody. <laughs> like I was in there and there was no one in there. And so I'm just kind of roaming around this little banquet room, just trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my time. So I wandered out into the hallway, um, which was at the top of a stairwell and walking up the stairs was Dale Earnhardt and, you know, some of his entourage. And you know, I'd only seen Dale Earnhardt on TV. <laughs> so um, I was kind of blown away and I'm like, all right, I, I, I got to act like I belong, right? So I have to say something rather than, you know, be like a fan. So I, I remember asking, I think, you know, how's the car? You know, of course, what else would you ask, right? Great question. So, <laughs> so and I remember distinctly in true Earnhardt fashion, he just went, uh, She's all right. And and I was like, wow, that's Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> like, I just <laughs> talked to Dale Earnhardt. That's all he said to me. But I was like, man, that is so cool. So, I, yeah, I can't believe that's still on the Internet or whatever. But now it's out mm -hmm. there forever. But, yeah, <laughs> I will never forget that as my first ever interaction with Dale Earnhardt. And uh, one of the coolest. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was just a kid. But, you know, after that, just to add to your story, not to do with Earnhardt, but, um, you know, I said I needed to learn the guys in each car. And so I found out and, you know, you can't see car numbers for that audition. You can just see colors. I actually took index cards with a box of crayons and like on the front of the index car, you know, I'd scribble red and on the back, I'd say, all right, this is Earnhardt. And then the next one I'd scribble green. All right, this is Unzer, you know, and so on and so forth. And that night in my Smart. room, I just give myself flashcards with colors and names so that I was able to call them when I was in the turn. That's true. Clearly you did well, right? I got the job. <laughs> so that was cool. <laughs> uh, Fred Armstrong was with me. He went up there um, with, you know, Fred Armstrong had been with the network for a number of years and was mm -hmm. certainly among their best turn reporters. And he was my chaperone, if you will, for the day, taught me how to use the equipment, <laughs> stood with me. And, uh, you know, after I did my audition, you know, he complimented me and I got the job, which was cool. So, um, yeah, definitely 
an interesting memory. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's out there on the internet, right? So I guess it's- And now it is again. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thanks cool. for bringing me down that, that lane on Memory Road. Yeah, trust me, we're scratching the surface, my friend. Oh, MRN was one of the stops, Blue Shirts Institution, right? This is a little bit before my time, not to age you, but TNN, NASCAR on TNN, um, that was also just super, super important in the growth of NASCAR, making it mainstream in terms of on television, inside NASCAR. That was a really, really institutionalized show. And you mentioned Alan Beswick was one of the people that helped you get that job down there. Um, how did that all come together? And was that also one of those opportunities where you would and did drop everything at a moment's notice to, to go jump on it? You talk about inside NASCAR? So Yes. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the moment uh, that was what I dropped everything for. Um, so, so I, I was working with Alan and, uh, you know, on MRN and, you know, you know, during our dinners or whatever, you know, casual conversation, you know, he understood that, you know, eventually I wanted to move to TV if there was some sort of opportunity. And he, he was adamant. I had to move to Charlotte to do it. And, um, so at the time he was working on a couple of shows at street and Smith's productions, um, and so he knew the producers over there, which put together Inside NASCAR, and he put in a good word for me, unbeknownst to me. And um, that's how that came about. And, um, you know, they called me and asked me to be part of it. So nice. it was a good opportunity. Um, you know, the people I worked with were Stephanie Boyd-Durner, Ned Jarrett, Steve, Steve Wade. Uh, Randy Pemberton was the other reporter at the time. So, yeah, so it was kind of cool. I want to get a list, like, after we finish, of just people that you've worked with. And see, like, how many of them are Hall of Famers? How many of them are legends of the game? I mean, it's crazy. Like, it's cliche to say, too. But all, th and this is even at the beginning of your career, I would say. And you've already worked with so many huge, big time names and legends of the sport. That's crazy. Yeah, lucky. I mean, I was very lucky, very fortunate to work with them. And, uh, you know, like you said, Hall of Famers, you know, definitely Hall of Famers. And I was just, I was very wet behind the ears. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So, um, I, you know, I was very fortunate to, to learn from some of the best. Did you also work as a producer when you were there? Uh, so my title was producer, but that only meant that I wrote my own stuff. I picked uh -huh. the video for my own stuff. <laughs> um, you know, I went through all the interviews. I, I set them up. I did a lot of the, the legwork. So, so you, my title you did some was producing. Producer. Yeah, I did. I did all. I mean, actually, I'm doing that now um, in news. Yeah. But um but yeah, I mean, I did all that, but I was on air reporting. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah, my title was producer. Do you think that being able to do some of the stuff behind the scenes, and again, you know, you were reporting, that was your main thing. Um, but being able to do some of the other stuff behind the scenes and kind of seeing how the sausage is made. I'm currently a PA at NBC Sports Washington. I'm an AP at Sirius. I have aspirations of doing the same things that you have been doing, did, and currently do. Do you think that that stuff helped you become a better on-air broadcaster, understanding how the world of TV works? Yeah, I mean, all of that. I mean, going all the way back to Stafford, you know, understanding how NASCAR works, how right. racetracks work, how promoting the racetrack works, um, you know, understanding how race teams operate, you know, all that stuff. I mean, it's there's so many different layers. Um, yeah, of course, you know, like anything else, experience is a big deal. Right. And to build upon that, yeah, that could only help. That could only help. So all this stuff led you to where I first got introduced to you because I'm a wee lad, which was at ESPN, the four letter network in 2001. Um, you did a ton of stuff there. And I know you got kind of thrown into the fire with the first race of 01, which we'll get to in a minute. But 
when you got hired there, did you feel like you'd made it at that point? Or did you had, had you already felt like, okay, I, I, I've been successful now. Like if everything were to end tomorrow, I feel good about it. Or getting to those, that four letter network, was that really, really the big ticket for you? I mean, I think a lot of people in this business, myself included, are so insecure that we never feel like we made it, right? So <laughs> I don't know that, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think I felt like I made it, you know, when I started ESPN, I was nervous, actually. I mean, it was it was a big job, it was a big network. A lot of you know, famous people work there. Um, you know, it was intimidating, uh, to be honest. But, you know, certainly uh, I was excited. Um, you know, a big network like ESPN, um, an opportunity like that, a platform like that, you know, yeah, of course, you know, and I worked on RPM tonight yeah. initially and some sports center, but basically I hired for RPM tonight, which was a show I watched daily. <laughs> so I, to be part of that was extremely, um, for lack of a better word, it was so cool. I mean, I mean, to work for RPM tonight, like, which was the premier racing show at the time. I mean, it didn't get any better than that, but did I feel like I'd made it? No, because I wasn't sure I belonged yet. And um, it, it took a very, very long time where I felt like, yeah, I belonged. So 2001 was an interesting time period in the media landscape for NASCAR because that was at the start of the new TV rights deal. Fox mm -hmm. is coming into the sport. They're broadcasting the Daytona 500. There's so much hype around it. It's at kind of the pinnacle and the hype of NASCAR. And then the last lap of the Daytona 500 happens and mm -hmm. Dale Earnhardt dies. And at this point, and you can correct me if I'm wrong as well, the research that I did, essentially, I couldn't imagine this now. Since ESPN didn't have the rights, you guys weren't allowed inside the racetrack, in the garage, on pit road, any of that stuff. So, And you were one of, if not the lead reporter at that race in terms of covering the storylines and the aftermath that followed that, that tragic event. How did you deal with that, like logistically, in terms of being a reporter, trying to get interviews, get live shots? I know that you did them from some very, very strange places, but just logistically trying to deal with that, how frustrating was that, and how did you do it? Well, that was the first weekend. I mean, it was the first week, right, speed weeks. Um, so we had been in Daytona for probably 10 days at that point. And, yes, we were adapting to a kind of a new media landscape. So – uh, for RPM tonight, you know, we did all of our interviews outside the racetrack. And that week, you know, we had managed to be able to do stuff at the Marina and Daytona. Uh, but for the most part, we were doing all of our live shots and some interviews on top of a strip mall across the street from the speedway, like literally on the roof, on the roof of a Pep Boys. We had a scissor lift on the back of the building that was rented just for us to get us Can up I stop there. you real quick? So I, I can't imagine like what, what, what was the deal back then? Why didn't they let you in? Was it just because you didn't have the rights? Is that well? Right? Yeah, it was a right. It was a rights thing. So, um, so at the time, so it was a change of broadcast partners with NASCAR, right. and it was the first year with Fox and NBC, um, and ESPN had been the long-standing broadcast partner of NASCAR. But the way the negotiations went, ESPN lost the rights. NBC and Fox acquired the rights. Some in some one of the contracts, I don't know if it was Fox or NBC or both, I don't know. There was some sort of clause that gave those networks exclusive rights to magazine style shows. Okay, of course, RPM Tonight was a magazine style show, so we weren't allowed to do any interviews inside the racetrack. Now, Sports Center was allowed to, um, but my bosses at ESPN and rightly so were of the belief if we go inside for Sports Center then no one's going to come outside for RPM tonight. They're going to do one interview with you and that's going to be it. So they said, 
what we're going to do for every interview is we're going to do them all outside the racetrack. Yeah. Smart. So, so that's the case. That's the case. Um, so that's why we did everything outside the racetrack. So that's, that's what we did. And that that's, that's why that was the situation. Just so, doing uh, interviews for the Daytona 500 on the roof of a pet boys. <laughs> is that as glamorous as it gets right there? <laughs> well, you know, like I said, you know, I was still so new with the network. I didn't care. Like, it was yeah. it was ESPN. I was going to do whatever you know whatever they wanted me to do. I didn't care. It didn't bother me. It may have bothered some of the other people who have been there for a number of years, but that was my first month with the network. So I was like, all right, whatever. That's this crazy. is what we're doing. Thankfully, um, the drivers, um, you know, especially the older ones at the time, um, they had so much respect for ESPN and what it had done to the sport to that point that they were willing to come out and do interviews outside the racetrack. Um, so I'm thankful. I mean, I, I, you know, and when I say the older guys at that time, we're talking about, you know, guys like Mark Martin, Dale Jarrett, Rusty Wallace and Earnhardt. I mean, they were all willing to come out. And those are huge names, but they came outside the racetrack to do interviews. I think that speaks volumes too. And mm -hmm. especially to you as well. I, I understand that they may have been looking at the brand more so than the individual. It wasn't the me. That they, they weren't coming out for me. They were coming out for the microphone flag. You know, the, those yeah. four letters. That, that was that was a tip of the cap to ESPN, not not to Mike Massaro, because most of them didn't even really know me. I mean, they knew me a little bit from TNN and what have you, but they didn't know me like they knew ESPN and, and what ESPN had done for the sport and for them. Right. I find that so interesting because, again, this is like your first assignment on the new job, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's right. an interesting atmosphere where you are an esteemed network and this is your first role with the network trying to prove yourself. And here you are out on this Island, like literally it seems like, and Dale Earnhardt's coming up to the top of a pet boys on a scissor lift talking to you. That's not normal. But at that time, like you said, you weren't going to say no, like that was your job. So not only were you doing your job, but you still were trying to prove yourself. So although it was a weird situation, I feel like that speaks volumes to the drivers and their personalities, but also the network that you're working for. And even though, like you said, they weren't necessarily going there for you, they could have left or they could have been like, well, whatever. I don't know this kid, but they stayed. So I think that's interesting. Right. It, it, it is. I mean, it was. I mean, and, and I remember almost every bit of it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Did you also do some stuff on like helipads? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, I mean, Daytona was one thing because it was ten days and was special, right? So they treated it a little, but most of the time, for, and we did this for three years. Um, oh my god! You know, we, we helicopter pads at racetracks um, was the most fruitful location for us because most of these guys <laughs> at the time, you know, took chartered flights out of the racetrack to avoid all the traffic and would fly right to, you know, the, air, the airport um, from the racetrack to just avoid the huge traffic jams there were. So uh, we would get them before they got on the helicopter. <laughs> we did lots of lots of live shots with helicopters in the background. Um, uh, in fact, at the end of the first year, to thank all the PR people in the sport for helping us get drivers out there, we yeah. put together a T-shirt. Um, and it was kind of, it's funny. On the front of the T-shirt, it had like a, cartoon character rpm tonight thing and on the back it was like a concert shirt right where it had listed all the locations and all the locations on the back were the helicopter pads like in phoenix it was like the snake pit helicopter pad and <laughs> darlington was diamond diamond hill plywood company or something like that which is where the helicopter pad was yeah um and it had all these funny listings and it had a cartoon character uh character of me with a microphone and a cartoon <laughs> character of our camera people chasing helicopters it was 
but, but we gave that t-shirt to everyone and um it was a big hit <laughs> everyone loved that t-shirt i love that so as we mentioned right this is your first assignment and it's one of if not the biggest one that you may have ever done in your career which is covering the death of the legend dale earnhardt how'd you deal with that how, how did you get the interviews how did you conduct the interviews how did you stay on topic and on track and not try to veer off and and you know get too big for your britches in such a huge huge moment yeah, well, first off, you know, it was my first assignment, but my first assignment was not to cover the death of Dale Earnhardt. My first assignment was to cover the Daytona 500. We didn't know that that was what was going to happen, obviously. Um, so we had to react. Um, you know, we saw, you know, we were outside the racetrack watching the race. And when we saw, there were two incidents, really. There was, the first one was Tony Stewart crashing and he flipped. Um and I remember thinking, and my producer and I talking, like, this is a big deal. So I had to leave and go in the racetrack. And so I went in the racetrack to find out what's going on. And thankfully, I found out Tony was okay. Um, and so that was one thing. But then when the race ended, of course, we saw the crash, but we weren't really, at the time, like so many people, we didn't think it was that big a deal. But what we were uh, really interested in was getting an interview with Michael Waltrip, the winner of the race. So right. I went in and I went to victory lane, you know, to talk to the PR person for Michael to see if he'd come out to pet boys to do an interview. And it was while I was in victory lane that people started to whisper that, you know, the crash was bad. So um, we started to react to that. It was pretty emotional at the time because you could see that people were scared and um, you know, Dale, knew so many people and so many people loved him inside the, the sport and out, outside the sport fans. So when we realized that this was what happened, I gotta admit we broke the, we broke the rules. Um, we broke the rules with the contract our first week. Right. Um, I, you know, Pete Waters, who was a producer, we decided there's no way we can miss this press conference inside the racetrack. So if you, you look at the interview, with Mike Helton, you'll see that the ESPN microphone is right there. Um, so we got the interview inside. It wasn't, you know, within the boundary necessarily of the contract. I don't think at the time it was for sports center. As I mentioned, it was okay for sports center, but for RPM tonight, we weren't supposed to be in there. So I, I actually, and we made the call on our own, um, you know, without talking to Bristol. Um, we just yeah. realized this is such a big deal. I can't miss this. There's no way, we didn't think there was any way that NASCAR was going to come out, do it all over again for us out, outside the racetrack. Um, and maybe they would have, I don't know. Um, but we weren't going to miss that. So, so we were in there. It was very emotional. Um, after that, you know, we did do all our reports outside. We didn't do any reports from inside, but we did get that interview. Um, that was the only one. I can't remember if we ever actually talked to Michael. I don't think we did. Um, for obvious reasons things change yeah yeah things changed um and that wasn't the story i mean the winner of the race was no longer the story which can you imagine the winner of the daytona 500 wasn't the story um so but i do recall because i was only there for a month at the time that espn um was trying to cover themselves and make sure that they had someone they could trust with hard news so they had a bureau reporter who they just hired in orlando um, he had only been there for about a month himself, uh, and he was mostly covering golf because it was Orlando, uh, and his name is Scott Van Pelt. <laughs> so you may have heard of Scott Van Pelt. Maryland's finest. 
Yes. So he has gone on to much bigger and better things, um, but he was the bureau reporter for ESPN in Orlando. So he and I worked together uh, covering what was happening, you know, in the days following that tragedy. Um, and he and I, um, you know, shared a lot of time because he, you know, will admit NASCAR was not his strength. And so I was happy to give him any information I had, you know, to, to help him with his live shots. And he would help me too. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I remember that vividly. That's when I met Scott for the first time. And, um, unfortunately it was under those circumstances, but, um, that's how we covered it that week. Yeah. Uh, the next week was just as difficult. Scott wasn't there, but it was me and Marlo Klain covering it the next week in Rockingham. Yeah. And that's not the, the first or the only, well, I guess it was the first, but that's not the only kind of sticky situation and unfortunate one that you've had to cover when you were at ESPN. Cause back in 2014, I think it was, you were kind of the lead correspondent for the Tony Stewart, Kevin Ward situation up in Canandaigua. And I mean, you were on GMA, you were on um, mm -hmm. ABC. That was also something that needed to be handled delicately. And I'm sure that you, you understood that going in and you had a lot of experience 13 years worth under your belt from 2001 up until that point. But again, when it comes to handling delicate things like that, they need to be handled just that way, which is delicately. Yeah. And you know, that's another crazy story to be honest. Um, so I was in Watkins Glen and I was going to be a pit reporter. I was a pit reporter, you know, mm -hmm. for that weekend's race on ESPN's team. And so, you know, that night, you know, before any of that happened, of course, I was doing what I always do in my hotel room, doing my notes, you know, to get ready as a pit reporter. And um, the next morning, I want to say it was like probably five in the morning or so. I got a call in my hotel room from one of my producers telling me to come to another producer's room. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's five in the morning. Why am I coming to a producer's room? He said, you just have to come here. So I came and when I came to that room, there were a number of producers in the room and I, right there, I was like, what's going on? And they told me what happened. I, you know, I didn't know. And they said, we're taking you off the broadcast today. We're sending you to Canadagua to work for sports center to cover this. And I was like, okay. And I had to digest all this on the way to Canadagua, which isn't terribly far from Watkins Glen at 5. AM. <laughs> right. But this is a 5 a.m. By the time I got debriefed by all, all the producers and probably some executives at ESPN who had already given them their their working orders, how we were going to cover this. Um, I got sent. And so um, my whole mindset changed. I mean, from covering pit road, that, it's a totally different mindset. Um, and I remember it was it was difficult. It was very difficult because we didn't really know anything. I mean, we were trying to find stuff out and like. Honestly, I mean, I wasn't groomed for that. Um, that was more of a police investigation kind of thing. And I was yeah. a sportscaster. Um, so I didn't have the chops really to do that, but I was the best one available at the time. And that was my final year with ESPN. I, I and mean, they already knew I was moving to NBC the next year. And like, so that was just, it was just odd. The whole thing was odd. Um, and it was difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I think, um, we did the best job we could, um, you know, but like you said, it was, it was a very delicate situation. Yeah. Your time mm -hmm. at ESPN, like you said, RPM tonight, you did some work on outside the lines, sports center, NASCAR now. Oh my God, Mike, when I tell you that I watched that show, like the back of my hand every oh, well, single good. day when I came home <laughs> from school, I'm not kidding. That was my show. Like people have race hub now. 
They had nothing on NASCAR now. I'm telling oh, you, that was you. my show. You were my childhood, sir. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for watching. We, we appreciate yes. it. We put a lot of work into that. And people that worked on that show uh, were passionate about it, just like we were with RPM tonight. Um, so thank you for watching. Yes, it was great. So my point was you did countless shows. You work with so many different people. I mean, even just on the NASCAR team, Del Jarrett, Rusty Wallace, Andy Petrie, Ricky Craven. I mean, Shannon Spake, who's still doing great stuff at Fox. And these are just people on the NASCAR team, not to mention SVP. And I'm sure you worked with Bob Lee at Outside the Lines when you were doing stuff there. Your time at ESPN overall, and a lot of people say this in, in motorsports and in the industry in general, relationships are so, so crucial and so important. And it seems like over your time there, which spanned over a decade, you gained a lot of really, really valuable relationships, some that I'm sure you probably still have today. I do. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, we've mentioned some of the names, uh, but yeah. You know, working at ESPN was unlike anything else. I mean, you were there with the best people in sports broadcasting, or at least some of the best people in sports broadcasting on a daily basis. And maybe it did, I didn't realize it at the time, but I mean, that was really incredible. I mean, you know, just sitting in makeup with like celebrities from other sports, like right. because it'd be three or four chairs of makeup and, you know, I could be sitting in one and, you know, Digger Phelps could be in the next one over here. Maybe Teddy Bruschi's over here. Like, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I, I mean, just to just know those folks. And even if we only had, you know, brief little conversations, because, you know, it wasn't real, you know, a depth, you know, a really deep yeah. relationship, but, um, you know, you know, we're colleagues, we work in the same building and do a similar job. And, and there was, you know, what I found interesting, you know, with, people like that, they would always ask about racing because they didn't know anything about it, but they were interested. Exactly. They were curious, you know, they want to learn about it. And so that was, that was great. Um, but yeah, you know, my relationships are still strongest with the racing people. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, uh, loved working with Ricky Craven as my analyst. Um, we, you know, of, of the people I worked with who are former drivers, you know, I, I probably bonded with Ricky more as a TV, uh, partner then that northeast bond baby yeah we you know we've we spent a little time away from television too together and uh, doing some fun things so yeah yeah so very fortunate yeah definitely very fortunate speaking of the northeast espn obviously is in bristol which is in connecticut so i'm sure that going back home so to speak for that job which was a dream job of sorts didn't really hurt matters either you weren't super super far from home no, well, I, you know, initially when I was working with ESPN, I was working out of their Charlotte office. ESPN has a, an office in Charlotte. So, right. uh, you know, I was there until I, I moved back to Connecticut when RPM Tonight decided they weren't going to do it anymore. Um, so I think that was so the 2003 season was the last season for RPM Tonight. So I moved back shortly after that so that I just I'd be here close to family um, and, you know, ESPN. Um, I didn't have to convince them to move back to Connecticut. As, as I remember at the time, uh, the person I had to ask permission from, you know, called me up and said, I never have people say they want to move to Bristol. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, yeah. So that was funny. I was like, yeah, well, I grew up not too far from there. So it worked out well for me. Yeah. Uh, 2014, you mentioned when you covered the Tony Stewart, Kevin Ward thing, that was your last year with ESPN. Um, after that, you went to NBC, but leaving ESPN and that chapter of your professional career closing, it's never easy, right? No. And I'm sure it's never easy to look back on either. At that time, how hard was it to, to have to move on from that specific opportunity? Because at that point, being there for 10 plus years, knowing all the people that you did, doing all the great work, award-winning work, 
I'm sure that that transition and leaving there was not really easy for you. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, unfortunately, ESPN had lost the broadcast contract uh, at the end of 2014. So um, the landscape changed. Um, my opportunities at ESPN um, were very unclear uh, what I would be doing, um, if anything. Um, and NBC at the same time, you know, was making me a, a, a tremendous offer, gave me a, a, an amazing opportunity. So it was a difficult decision, but I felt like the one that had the most security made sense to go to NBC. Uh, my contract was expiring at the same time in 2004, so it was a clean break. Um, there was no overlap. There was none of that. Um, so it just made the most sense to go to NBC at the time. And um, like I said, what NBC presented to me was an amazing opportunity. And um, I enjoyed my time there, too. Yeah. So let's lead right into there, then. You go to NBC for motorsports. Uh, not th- I don't think we were coworkers then, but maybe. No. It was too- <laughs> I was too young because I interned there the summer of 2016 or 17. But... Anyways, you worked at NBC for a couple of years. You're back now with the Peacock family, which is cool. Um, so at that point, you know, once the ESPN rights deal kind of happened, you were still looking to stay in the sport at that point. You hadn't necessarily wanted a break from it, and you were looking to stay in the sport, and you kind of got your wish. Yeah, I mean, it's what I knew. And, you know, it's what I felt like I, you know, we talked about experience and, you know, building upon a foundation. Uh-huh. I had gotten to the point, yeah, where, where I was comfortable in that area. You know, if ESPN had offered me something doing football or baseball, I don't know what I would have done at that point, but that wasn't on the table. Um, so, but, but the motorsports thing was, you know, just extending my NASCAR career was on the table with NBC. So yeah, you know, becoming a full-time pit reporter, which I was kind of splitting my time at ESPN as a host of NASCAR now and a pit reporter. So to be able to just kind of like focus a little bit, although I, you know, I hosted um, NASCAR America with, with NBC as well. So it just seemed like it was a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, I, I was looking forward to it. So you stayed there for a couple of years. You did awesome work there as well. And then yeah. after 2016, you left there. And I remember, um, and doing the research as well, I remember you, you had the pretty heartfelt Facebook posts in terms of just the decision to leave there and how it was really hard and you didn't know necessarily if you were ever going to work in racing again. Mm-hmm. What made that time period so hard for you? Well, that's a complicated question, uh, to be honest. Um, there were a lot of things going on in my personal life um, that I don't know that I really want to go into too much. Um, yeah. But my marriage was being affected. Um, my health, my mental health was being affected um, by some things. And the job was part of that. And so, you know, being on the road as much as I was, the pressure involved with the job, it just it just kind of came to a head. And um, I made the decision to leave, which in hindsight, I'll, I'll be completely honest. Um, there have been many, many moments where I wish I didn't. Um, I wished uh, I could have been more mentally tough at the time uh, and just dealt with some of the stuff I was going through. Um, but, you know, at, the, at that moment, you know, uh, at the end of the 2016 season, that seemed like the only decision I could make. Um, I know I'm being vague, but just things weren't good for me. Things weren't good for me at the time. And I had to I had to get out. And um, but in hindsight, I wished I didn't. Um, I miss it. You know, I miss it a lot. I missed it a lot. And NBC gave me, like I said, a tremendous opportunity that I wish I could have done more with. So that's the truth. I appreciate you sharing that for sure. Um, 
in terms of being on the road, like I've talked to so many people that are on the road, either all 36 races or for the Fox portion, NBC portion. And it's constant. It's every single week. You did it for ESPN. You were doing it for NBC. I know it's a cliche question too, but how do you manage that? I mean, that's so hard just to be away for that long, living out of a suitcase, waking up, not knowing where you are. That's tough to deal with. I mean, it's cool, but at the same time, it's still stressful and busy. You know, it's funny you say that because I, I think back to my years at Stafford when Jack Arut would come back from his trips and I could see how exhausted he was. Um, yeah. But, and he would say things like, yeah, it's a lot of work and, you know, the grind, you talk about that a little bit, but I didn't believe it. I was like, wow, that's the coolest thing ever. You get on an airplane all the time. You're going all over the country. You're covering racing. I can't imagine anybody ever being tired by that, but he was right. He was hundred percent right. Um, you know, and as I talk about my final year at NBC, that was a lot of it. <laughs> you know, my kids were getting older too, and I was missing them growing up. Uh, they were both, my oldest was uh, a freshman in high school and my youngest, I think was 12 years old. So it was a pretty important time in their lives to have their dad around. And I missed that. And that had added up for me um, over the years, missing that because there were a lot of things I missed and I felt guilty about. Um, my wife was great and supportive in the whole thing, never gave me any grief about missing some of these things. She got it, like I said, from the very beginning. Um, but you know, uh, the, the, the travel is hard. Um, you know, it, it, it adds up and it wears on you. Um, yeah, but you know, there's ways to deal with that too. (laughs) So, uh, it's, I don't want to oversell it. Like it's not, you know, the worst thing in the world. I mean, you can get used to it. There's people that have done it longer than I have. Um, but we've also seen other people get out because of that. So that was just part of it for me. I wish we had more time with you, Mike, but there's a couple more things that we got to hit on the here and the now NBC Connecticut. You're still doing work with them. Not necessarily sports centric, so to speak, more so a general assignment reporter, but you're still doing great work up there. My grandparents live in Greenwich, so I'm sure that they watch you almost every night. And if they don't, I'll make them watch. How have you enjoyed your time up there doing a little bit of something different than you've done for most of your career? First off, I want to let your grandparents off the hook. Uh, they do not get NBC Connecticut in Greenwich. Okay, <laughs> so. that's what I thought. It's not in our DMA. Uh, we're in the Hartford area. Uh, we don't go that far south. Um, if you're ever in Hartford, I'll make sure they tune in. There you go. Um, but yeah, adapting to that has been um, a lot of work, to be honest. You know, it's not like anything I'd ever done before this. Uh, I'd never worked in local television. Um, so I didn't know how all of that worked. Uh, and also hard news, while I've had the racing hard news for sure, I haven't had this type of hard news, especially during a pandemic. (laughs) So uh, there's a lot of storylines that I've had to adapt to, a lot of ways to manage those storylines that I've had to learn. Uh, For example, you know, sitting in court while someone's arraigned knowing how to get the court papers afterwards, all stuff I had to learn. Um, The deadlines are aggressive to say the least, uh, trying to turn probably two stories, sometimes more around in one day in a matter of hours, um, has trained me to be a lot faster. Um, I gotta be honest. It's not, um, the stories we do aren't as polished as what I'm used to doing because we don't have the time, you know, to yeah. dedicate to those things. Quick turnarounds. Yeah. Quick turnarounds. Um, but the people I work with, I mean, the on-air talent, 
I mean, they're incredibly talented and um, I'm learning from them every day. I've been doing NBC uh, Connecticut News for now almost three years, and I'm still learning from the reporters and the anchors. Um, they've allowed me to anchor a little bit, which is great. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be doing some of that. But, uh, you know, I still am the newbie when it comes to local mm -hmm. news. So I'm still learning. <laughs> Speaking of being a newbie. You're not new to NASCAR. You're not new to pit reporting, but Mav TV debuted a little bit of a new lineup uh, a couple weeks ago here at Phoenix. Krista Kelly, which is still weird for me to say, uh, <laughs> Jim Trado, and yourself, you were back on pit road, back wearing the headset. I know it's really cliche, but how good did it feel to just be back at the racetrack and be back doing what you do best? Uh, it was surreal, to be honest. Uh, I'd been away from it for five years. I hadn't put the headset on for five years. But to walk back in that garage... Um, I don't want to say it felt like I'd never left because it definitely felt like I'd left, but to see so many uh, faces that I hadn't seen in years and for those folks to go out of the way to come up and say hello to me, uh, I was blown away. Um, you know, one person I got to give a big shout out to would be Jamie Little. Jamie and I have stayed in contact through social media and we've, we've texted back and forth every once in a while, but I hadn't seen her since, I don't know, probably 2017. Wow. Um, and so she texted me and made it a point to come to me in the garage. And, um, you know, as you know, Jamie is also the play-by-play -play voice for ARCA, the ARCA right. Menard series for, uh, Fox. And so she knows a lot of folks in the ARCA garage who I'm still trying to get to know. Um, and she walked me around and introduced me to a lot of people I haven't met yet. So, uh, big tip of the cap. Good, good to see Jamie. Saw a bunch of other racers I hadn't seen in a while. There's a lot of crew chiefs that were working in the Arca Menard series who worked in the cup series previously. So it's good to be reacquainted with them as well. Uh, just, it was great. I mean, I, there was one point during the race in Phoenix where um, I was probably, probably midway through the race where I just caught myself just thinking that, wow, I'm doing this again. So it was cool. Uh, had a ton of fun. Um, when I walked away and you know, I was like, wow, I missed that. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to getting back to our next one. Unfortunately, it's not for a while, um, but uh, I'm really, I'm so excited about, you know, the, the remaining 10 races we have, you know, working with Krista, that's another thing too. I mean, I miss her. Reunited. She's, she's amazing. She's really good. Um, you know, I think she has similar feelings about being back at the racetrack. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun. You know, and we're going to do the best we can do uh, every week, just like we always have tried to. Um, and I, we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. How did that whole thing come about? Because when I saw the announcement, I was overjoyed because, like I said, I watched you on NASCAR now my entire childhood. Krista, same thing on Speed and NBC. I mean, that's a power duo right there. And then Jim Trado <laughs> knows everything about ARCA. Like, that is a wonderful trio. How did the whole thing come about with MAV-TV? Well, I don't know how it worked out for Krista, um, but I can tell you that Bob called me uh, this winter some point and Bob Dillner and offered me the opportunity. Um, and I told him I think I had to think about it for a little while. And uh, but, you know, honestly, I didn't think about it very long because <laughs> because <laughs> I realized that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, I wanted an opportunity to go back to the racetrack. And, uh, you know, Bob, you know, I'm so grateful that he thought of me. Um, to ask me to do it. And like I said, I, I can't be more thrilled about the opportunity and looking forward to the next 10 races, but that that's how it came about. I mean, yeah. uh, Bob called me and I've known Bob going back to the Stafford days. 
So, um, so Bob and I and, and his brother, Matt, uh, I've known them. They used to come to Stafford uh, with their dad uh, as media members. Um, they worked for a Long Island station that covered modified racing. Mm-hmm. And when I was the PR director at Stafford, I used to credential them. So, wow. uh, so yeah, I've known them for decades. And so for Bob to think of me, you know, now that he's been elevated to an executive position with Mav TV, um, meant the world. So you're saying it just all comes back to Stafford. It's always full circle with Stafford. Hey, this the relationships you hit on it. Relationships yeah, are everything. Yeah. Uh, I got so much more that I want to get to, like this random story about a crouton with Elio Castroneves being <laughs> chastised by a Muppet, almost drowning oh, at wow. a fishing tournament in Miami. I want to get to all that, but that'll have to be for another day. I want to end just with – go ahead. Part two, part two sometime down the road. <laughs> hey, if you're down, I'm down, Mike. Sure, anytime. I want to end this one, though. You've done so much in your career in motorsports, out of motorsports, stick and ball – um, even outside of journalism reporting, like outside of sports, you've done so much, you've won so many awards. Is there anything else that you want to accomplish professionally, whether it be in motorsports or in news, in journalism, do you have something else that you want to accomplish or want to check off your list? Uh, it's a great question. I would love to broadcast the Daytona 500. Um, never did that. So, uh, that's the one race that, that I, really want to do i mean the indy 500 is out there too but i've never really done any indy car stuff so that's not really on my bucket list um but yeah i've covered lots of races at daytona daytona is my favorite racetrack um but never got the chance to, to broadcast the daytona 500 other than you know pre-race stuff with sports center and what have in post-race stuff but yeah I, I guess that would be still on the dream list uh because i don't know that there's a path to that but um certainly that would be the one thing I like to dream big, so let's dream big. How about we do a Daytona 500 broadcast together one day? All right. Well, maybe we'll do that. <laughs> After part two of Victory Lane down the road. We got to start small here. <laughs> Sounds good. Enjoy your eye appointment. Say hi to the dog <laughs> once again for me. Uh, this has been yeah. a thrill for me, for real. I know it sounds kind of weird, but you are one of the people I watched growing up my whole life and one of the people that helped me get into this realm of journalism and motorsports. So. Whether you know it or not, and I'm sure you didn't, maybe now you do, you had a big influence on me. It's been a thrill to talk to you, and I can't wait to hopefully see you in person at the racetrack soon. You did a great job at Phoenix. I can't wait to hear you guys for the next few broadcasts. Well, thank you, and yeah, definitely, let's do part two. And we're back. Woo! How about that? What a guy. What a guy. I have no doubt that those goals that he still wants to accomplish, he will because he's talented enough to be picked up by whatever network eventually broadcast the Daytona 500 uh, before his career is up. But man, I, I look forward to potentially working with him one day too. That would be a real, real dream of mine. So Mike, thank you so much for the time, my friend. It was great to learn a little bit more about you, get to know you a little bit better. And I know that the fans listening are just as appreciative of it as I am. So I appreciate you, my friend. And we'll look forward to part two. I had this whole thing already taped and ready to go for last week's show that never really came um, after the Derek Nealon interview. And it was talking about Ross Chastain and his win at Coda and previewing Richmond and how I was going and all this stuff. And then, you know what, hit the fan on Wednesday night, tested positive, and then that kind of threw everything into a flux. And my voice was so bad and I couldn't record anything even if I wanted to get an episode out. But I'm feeling good enough now to do that. So that recording obviously was old news, moot point. But now we got Martinsville to talk about. How about Denny Hamlin? Joe Gibbs Racing 
They said, yeah, we haven't been great this year so far, but fear not. We will be back in a big way at Richmond. And boy, were they. All four of their cars inside the top 10. Denny gets the dub for the fourth time in his career at one of his home tracks at Richmond Raceway. Wasn't one of the best races I've ever seen in my life, but it really was an intriguing one because of the strategy involved with it. You had Martin Trucks Jr. and William Byron, who didn't think they were on the same strategy, but ended up being on the same strategy. Then you had Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin coming through the field at the end of it. I did not think that they were going to be able to catch Truex and Byron, but they did pretty easily, got right by them, and boy, they set sail from there. Harvick got close, not close enough, though, to make a move, and Denny delivers once again. Denny Hamlin wins for the first time this season, gets a top 10 finish for the first time this season, and he does it in winning fashion. So good for him, good for Joe Gibbs Racing, and I know that they will look to carry that momentum this weekend to Martinsville Speedway, which should everything keep going according to plan, I still feel pretty good. I will be on site at Martinsville Speedway for Front Stretch, doing all the coverage that I wish I could have done this past weekend at Richmond, but hey, better late than never, better safe than sorry. So I'm looking forward to knock on wood, hopefully being there this weekend. And again, if you guys are out there, if you see me, say what's up, come say what's Say what's up. Come say hello. And if you tell me that you listen to the podcast, I don't know, maybe I'll bring a prize or something and give it to the first person that says they do. That'll wrap things up for episode 142 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you guys like what you heard here today, as always, do me a favor. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Subscribe to us there on Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop me a line and we'll try to rectify that issue for you also want to give a quick plug to the front stretch podcast you guys know me you guys have listened to me for a long time you know that kevin harvick was in a prior life my guy that was my guy and i got to actually sit down with him on zoom for 15 minutes and chat one-on-one with him for the front stretch podcast this week in association with dover motor speedway for a promotion that they were doing that was a thrill for me. It really, really was. So I encourage you guys to go check that out this week. And I'll be tweeting out some clips, as always, on my social media account from this chat with Mike and from that chat with Mr. Harvick as well. Thank you guys for your support. Thank you guys for listening. We will catch you back next week with another guest from the world of NASCAR. And I'm looking forward to bringing it to you, as always. And I'm looking forward to being at Martinsville this weekend. Hopefully see you guys there and talk to you all next week. Be good.